Welcome. Welcome to the first in this year's uh, welcome to the first in this year's uh, lecture series on Islam and uh, democracy. Uh, our first speaker is Marvin Weinbaum, who has been uh, a long time at the University of Illinois, so very familiar with this part of uh, the country, uh, but most recently in Washington, D.C., first as the State Department official and now as a consultant and kind of general gadabout. Uh, so he's had three careers, actually, uh, Marvin has had. This is an enviable uh, course of life, uh, it seems to me. He spent more than three decades as a uh, university professor of political science, uh, and then he spent about half a decade uh, working for the State Department, putting into practice all of the uh, things that he had learned uh, in his academic career, uh, and now he's still uh, got his hand in, um, not least because Pakistan and Afghanistan are places that demand that people who are experts on the subject uh, have their hand in. Uh, so uh, our speaker today is uh, Marvin Weinbaum, and his lecture is The Islamic Dimension of the Insurgencies in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Please welcome uh, Marvin. Yeah, there's, there's a great deal of call for, for people who look at the part of the world that I've become familiar with. And uh, uh, we, we think of it as a real growth industry for those who want to enter into it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, doing research in Afghanistan and Pakistan, say for uh, our graduate students, uh, uh, is a, a very difficult proposition. And uh, uh, we worry a great deal about about not only the previous generation not having academic expertise in the area, but also uh, what uh, the near future looks like as well. It's, uh, it's quite unfortunate. Uh, journalists stepping into the breach here doesn't exactly, I think, qualify. But what it does mean, and I saw this when I was in government, uh, that less and less, uh, and that's certainly true in, since I've left and I'm – do a great deal of uh, <clears throat> uh, of uh, consulting now with government and, and private sector. That less and less are we having occasion to call on people from the academic community, uh, and it, it's it's a shame because those of us who spent a long time in international studies <clears throat> and come out of that '60s generation, people who are hired in that time and know uh, the full. The, the full uh, uh, dimension of, of uh, what a f strong international studies uh, uh, discipline can be like uh, have seen that, unfortunately, whittle away very, <clears throat> very severely. Um, my remarks today address uh, three, three general questions. First, to what extent does Islam play a role in the, Af the Afghan and the Pakistani insurgencies? We generally think of the Taliban here, but it's not just the Taliban. And how does it compare with other motivating or guiding factors? A second area that I'd like to look at is what's the nature of this Islamic influence? From what circumstances and religious sources does it draw its strength and justification? And also to see what other influences there are out there which compete with or complement the Islamic. Thirdly, how does Islam affect the way the insurgency is conducted in both countries? <clears throat> and what does it suggest about how we might best address it? Those are insurgencies. 
More specifically, the extent to which Islamic convictions play a role in the thinking of the Taliban leaders and their followers in both countries is needed if we're going to understand the goals of the insurgency, the mode of decision-making, and internal cohesion of the two insurgencies, their ability to attract and hold followers, how well they succeed in implementing their policies, the kinds of tactics that they use, and finally, the prospects for defeating or reconciling with those insurgencies. You know, there are, to be sure, similarities between the two countries, but uh, we're also going to see that there are uh, there are considerable distinctions as well. Now, in both countries, the announced goal of the insurgencies is the establishment of a Sharia state. The demand is that these governments, Afghanistan and Pakistan, strive for a pure Islam by strict adherence to a scripturalist Salafi tradition that in South Asia is most associated with the Sunni Diobandi school that embraces notion of taklid, which is translated imitation or tradition, as opposed to ijtihad, which is independent interpretation. Diobandis espouse a highly rigid, conservative Hanafi code of Islam. This tradition, like the Wahhabi tradition, which I think many of you are familiar with, is antagonistic not only to more liberal legal schools of Islam, it also carries a deep animosity toward the Shiite branch of Islam. The restoration of a caliphate, Islamic rule that transcends national boundaries, is a real, if distant, goal. Their belief leads to a strong rejection of foreign, non-Islamic religious and cultural influences in Afghanistan and Pakistan, in those societies. The traditional beliefs of the region, it should be noted, while socially conservative, tend toward a more relaxed, spiritualistic form of Islam associated with Sufi beliefs and practices, leading some to consider the Taliban as not being traditional at all, and in fact having corrupted even Diobandi teaching and as uh, <clears throat> uh, fashioning themselves more as cultists. That is very debatable. Islamic motives in the two insurgencies exist side by side and are influenced by those motives which are ethnic, tribal, and nationalist. The Taliban in Afghanistan are predominantly Pashtun, an ethnic group that constitutes a near majority in Afghanistan, but less than fifth of the population of Pakistan. In Afghanistan, Pashtuns have fought as an ethnic group to retain their longstanding social, economic, and political ascendance nationally against competing ethnic minorities, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Hazara are the three most predominant of those minorities. The Afghan Taliban top command 
is mostly also from a single Pashtun tribe, or, or tribe, yes, I will call them a full tribe, called the Gilzais. Uh, and they have long resented the traditional political leadership among the Pashtuns of the more numerous Durrani's. So even within that, they have been a minority. The Afghan Taliban are not above using ethnic pride and tribal identity to enhance solidarity, but have tried to portray themselves as transcending ethnic and tribal institutions and distinctions. Uh, We were able to capture, for example, uh, last year, one of their manuals, uh, and uh, it had been circulated uh, and it speaks very clearly of avoiding tribal, linguistic, and, reg- and regional prejudices. It's very much in what we call now the business of strategic communications or winning over hearts and minds of people. Interestingly, they do not similarly reject Afghan nationalist goals. Of course, theologically, it's inconsistent with the transnational character of their Sunni faith. But since their foundings, the Taliban have stressed their objective to liberate the country from those responsible for social disorder and foreign influence, foreign influences, as well as just simply Islamic, un-Islamic behavior. Initially, the Taliban movement was mainly dedicated to wresting power from the Afghan warlords who were preying upon the local population. The absence of basic security and any system of justice under the local commanders and their militias brought the Taliban immediate support. Evidence that Pashtun nationalism was trumped by broader uh, national objectives is suggested by the fact that when the Afghan Taliban were in power, as they were in most of the country by the end of the 90s, They were never satisfied in just controlling the south and the east of the country where most of the Pashtuns live. Uh, They insisted they would make no compromises because they wished to bring their Sharia state to all of the ethnic groups, to all Afghans. In practice, as Pashtuns, they have fought other ethnic groups, And for that reason, these ethnic groups tend to view it as a largely Pashtun movement, but they do not see themselves in that that sense. And they certainly are not, as I'll indicate in a moment, should not be viewed so much much tribally as we do with the Pakistani Taliban. With the military intervention of the U.S. and allied forces beginning in 2001, the nationalist rallying cry became resisting occupiers using Afghanistan for their own regional and global strategic interests and intent upon implanting their alien cultures. Now, in Pakistan, the insurgency that becomes visible only beginning in 2003 when the Pakistani Taliban, Tariki Taliban, came on the scene is an outgrowth, though, of a much more lengthy transition that elevated the once once mostly ceremonial figure of the local mullah 
and in most of the tribal areas supplanted traditional tribal leadership. It grew out of the Afghan jihad against the Soviet and Afghan communists during the 1980s, the Civil War of the 90s, and the insurgency in Afghanistan after 2001. Throughout, the boarding areas in Pakistan were deeply involved in those conflicts and were overrun with guns, money, and outside influences that empowered and politicized these mullahs actually a new breed of mullah. The Pakistan government's sole support of Islamic parties in the jihad of the 80s and its sponsorship of the Taliban in the 1990s <clears throat> in the Civil War also helped to propel this new breed of local religious leaders, many of them mullahs, who assembled radicalized, uneducated, unemployed young men into a fighting force, in this, I'm talking about the tribal border areas we refer to as Fata uh, in the west of Pakistan. They're evicting and often killing traditional tribal leaders, especially in south and north Waziristan, accelerated when the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, and their allies, including al-Qaeda, took sanctuary in Pakistan after being evicted in in the American military campaign in late 2001. Among the insurgents in Pakistan, Pashtun nationalism has played a lesser but not absent role. And that's in no small part because that was already in a way preempted. Pashtun nationalism in, in Pakistan has been the uh, really the... Uh, the, I, I think the, in possession of a, of a strong uh, nationalist secular party. Tribal politics and tribal demands have been more relevant to the insurgency than in Afghanistan. Some tribal groups have worked with the government, some against it. In general, the insurgents are resentful of the treatment that Pakistan's tribal agencies have received at the hands of government agents and the continued underdevelopment of their region. The Pakistani Taliban... Uh, by the way, let me stop. If, if anywhere along the way here, I should have said this at the beginning, you need any word, if there's any reason for clarification, anything I'm saying, please feel free to intervene. The Pakistani Taliban are soldiered by tribal fighters who, while initially focused on establishing Islamic justice and governance locally, leave no doubt that their intentions are to implement these institutions and values countrywide, even if that means, as it has, attacking the Pakistan establishment. They also... <clears throat> They are also supportive of a Talibanization, naturally, of Indian Kashmir. After the attacks in Mumbai and the threats to retaliate by the Indians, it's interesting that the then Taliban leader, Batullah Masood, publicly announced that his organization was going to stand with the Pakistan army to defend the frontiers against the Indians. Certainly uh, a, a, a something new to their agenda, but in fitting with the fact that they, they do have 
a, na- a nationalist dimension to them. Of late, the Pakistani Taliban have also threatened attacks on, on the West. The international goals and religious aspirations of Al-Qaeda have rubbed off more on the Pakistani Taliban than they have on their Afghan counterparts. <coughs> Although the leadership on both sides of the border use a religious idiom to assert their legitimacy and define their mission, they do so despite the lack of formal training and the kind of family lineage that traditionally is accorded to leadership in the tribal society. Mullah Omar has rather ordinary, Mullah Omar being the the leader of the Afghan Taliban, has rather ordinary madrasa training, and that's true for his associates as well. But they are respected for their perceived religious piety and their supposed historic role in the jihad of the 1980s. Omar particularly trades on his charisma. He reportedly goes into trances from which he emerges with divine guidance. One of his first acts of leadership in 1994, when the Taliban first appeared on the scene in Afghanistan, was to publicly drape himself in the purported cloak of the prophet. He took the title not of president or prime minister, but as Amir al Sorry, Amir al Mamunim, which is translated as Commander of the Faithful. The country became an Islamic emirate rather than an Islamic republic, which is what Afghanistan calls itself today and what Pakistan calls itself. The strongest ministry during the Taliban rule was not surprisingly and I might say not just the strongest, but perhaps the only functioning ministry to speak of, was the Ministry of Enforcement and Virtue. Actually, we know very little about... I hope that's not mine. (laughs) No, I don't think it is, but it's a warning anyway. Actually, we know very little about the influence of Islam in the decision-making and internal dynamics of the leaderships of the two Taliban's. We believe that Mullah Omar is not the CEO of the organization and leaves the day-to-day operations of the insurgency to his immediate subordinates. But there's little doubt that he has the last word in all important decisions, mostly in deference, again, to his perceived religious virtue. The Taliban do use what is uh, traditional in the, in the, uh, both the tribal and the, uh, uh, and the Sunni tradition, and that is they do use the institution of the shura, um, a system of consultation. But when they controlled in Afghanistan. It was very clear, even though there were shura around the country, that there was one supreme shura, and it was in Kandahar, and he was uh, he was its head. In other words, I think the f- fact is that that the, this shura monopolized power, and that he uh, commanded that shura. Uh, interestingly, even now, 
the Pakistani Taliban claim that their spiritual leader is Mullah Omar. The destruction, as many of you may remember, this goes back to the 2000, of the historically important Bamiyan Buddhas. I think that's very instructive here. Uh, Omar's decision to destroy those Buddhas was based on Islamic grounds. For all of the Taliban's attempts in those in that period to gain international recognition and and to uh, ingratiate itself with uh, particularly elements in the Islamic world, it disregarded international pressures, including those from the Arab countries and other Muslim countries, to spare those Buddhas. As you know, they were uh, they were destroyed uh, and. Uh, major heritage of the Afghan people went with it. The Pakistan Taliban is a much looser organization. Its titular leaders, first Batula Mas, well, actually, first Manama of uh, uh, Nick Mohammed, who was uh, killed, then Batula Masood, who is also now dead, uh, a drone attack. And until today, as it was announced, although many of us had wind of this several weeks ago, the supposed killing of Hakimullah Masood. It's in today's news. Uh, it's revealed that he is alive. He survived the drone attack. Uh, although these men obviously held this much more disparate organization together, they've had to negotiate with other leaders, with other tribal groups. These are tribal types. They have much more of a tribal connection than does Mullah Omar and his associates. In contrast to Mullah Omar having the last word, decisions are made by consultation uh, in the tradition of the Shura and the tribal norm of Jirga. When Batula Masood was killed, and it was thought that Hakimullah was dead, there was a period of uncertainty about succession that was revealed in fractures in the movement. Although succession had to pass to someone sufficiently militantly Islamic, it was a collective political decision, hotly contested, that determined the outcome. Both country, in both countries, a variety of motives aside from Islamic and nationalistic are needed to explain why individuals and groups of individuals join or align with the Taliban. On examination, what we find is that the insurgency is very importantly a source of income, a means to settle individual, family, and tribal grievances against authority, <clears throat> be that provincial or central authority, and not importantly, a cover for criminal activities, not the least of which is the drug trade. But religious and nationalist justifications, nevertheless, are there. In Pakistan, uh, the recruits are far more ideological, though, than in Afghanistan. Many of them have been educated in madrasas which don't exist in Afghanistan. They tend to be more politicized with Islamic-oriented and use anti-Western rhetoric. 
In the Pakistan tribal areas, particularly now north and south Waziristan, the Taliban have effectively controlled a whole range of government functions, I should say until recently, in south Waziristan, from taxation collection to education to judicial functions, all supposedly enforcing acceptable Islamic practices. Accepted Islamic practices. In Afghanistan, although the Taliban have established shadow officials and exercised informal power throughout much of the south and east of the country, in just a few districts do they have unchallenged control and actually are the uh, are more visible authority. Now, to obtain compliance where they do exercise control, the Taliban, whether it be in Afghanistan or Pakistan, do not rely, rely entirely on religious justification. Much of it depends simply on intimidation and material incentives. The Taliban fighters in Afghanistan are reportedly paid as much as $10 a day. That's a lot of money for them. A good example of the ability to enforce decisions is the success of the Afghan Taliban in implementing a ban on poppy production in 2000 and 2001. Something we didn't believe in the State Department at the time, by the way. We couldn't imagine that they were able, simply by declaring that uh, that production was haram, was forbidden, that, uh, uh, that they could stop production as quickly as they did. Now, their motives may have been other than just Islamic. And after all, they had delayed the imposition of this. They had been collecting or siphoning off from the trade 10% until this point. But they did, they did enforce it for that reason. And one of the reasons that we believe they did was, again, that they were looking for international approval. Uh, uh, a more... Uh, a more a, uh, uh, Skeptical view would be uh, what they saw was a sagging prices of opium, and what better way to to increase the market value of opium than to stop production for a growing season or two. But for the most part, um, what we have to conclude is that they did succeed and that they did use religious reasoning to enforce it, along with the fact that they had disarmed many of those areas in the Helmand and Kandahar provinces where it was growing, and so that they weren't faced with an immediate resistance from the local tribal people or the local farmers. So it was intimidation which plays as large a role. It's certainly true that Afghan and Pakistan Taliban have carried Diabandi-inspired practices on the use of violence far beyond anything that had been witnessed in this region before. The, the Pakistan Taliban are more ruthless than their Afghan counterparts. There's an active debate among Islamists about the legitimacy of beheadings and suicide bombings, especially where, innocent, where it takes innocent civilians. Now, uh, there's no difficulty in finding verses in the Quran or the Hadith to suit their purposes when they're looking for for uh, uh, 
justification when it comes to women's behavior, drugs, and jihad. So I think we have to keep that in mind, that there's, there's, re, there's, there's room here for some debate. And it has, as a result of the fact that their practices go well beyond any kind of traditional aggression or, 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 or violence between tribes and in the loc- locality, it goes well beyond anything we'd seen before. Many of these practices, particularly the, uh, the IEDs, as they're called, the improvised explosive devices, were directly transported, the building of, of uh, uh, suicide belts as well, directly transported from knowledge gained during the fight in Iraq and uh, very likely by al-Qaeda operatives acting as instructors. But there has been a shift in public opinion in general in Pakistan against them, largely because of the fact that these uh, these uh, practices have been viewed with uh, such a question. But let me mention in this context that although there is today a military campaign against the Pakistan Taliban, there is not against the Afghan Taliban. They continue to enjoy a high degree of impunity uh, in their sanctuaries, uh, and that includes the Afghan Taliban in areas of Balochistan, a group called the Haqqani Network, or Haqqani Group in northern Waziristan, and another group called the the Hezbi Islami, which is associated, which is led by a man by the name of Gulbuddin Hedmakyar. And just in passing, I to mention the reason for this is that these groups are viewed as assets and not as liabilities and have been so for some time. Whether there will be a change in that now that they have had some, some success against the Pakistan Taliban remains to be seen. But they are... They have not been attacked simply because the Pakistanis presume that the international community will leave Afghanistan before too long, that Afghanistan will become destabilized, and that they need a proxy force there, a friendly Pashtun force, which will then provide them a cordon sanitaire along the east and southern part of the country to protect them to what they expect and understandably is would be the case, a civil war in which Iran, Russia, India will all be involved with their proxy clients as well. There's much talk today about reconciliation with the Afghan Taliban leadership that would amount to some sort of grand bargain with the Kabul government and its supporters. The Pakistanis tried this sort of uh, negotiations and in six separate deals that they had, they all failed. But the idea that we will work in Afghanistan is very much alive. Above all, the top leadership's ideological agenda makes, I think, real compromise highly improbable. The claim that that were the Afghan Taliban to return to power, they would behave just as nationalists and divorce themselves from radical transnational Islamic movements uh, is what is being said. But this flies in the face, I believe, of what we know about the movement and particularly what they have done both during the time they held power 
and since. Mullah Omar's record for linking the resistance in Afghanistan to the broader struggle of Muslims in the West is, is on the record. Supporters of the negotiations with the Taliban argue that the Taliban are mainly concerned with establishing, in any case, a Sharia-compliant state, and they can work with other non-Pashtun ethnic groups to form a national government, even one that respects good portions of the current constitution. But Taliban concessions would mean accepting, which I don't believe they, would, they can, theologically, a separation of, state, of the state from religion. They were never willing in the past to compromise on these principles, and we did try to negotiate with them. And I was on the periphery of some of those negotiations in the late 90s and up until, in fact, 2000, uh, September of 2001. Always felt that they didn't have to compromise because, first of all, they were winning. And even if they weren't winning, they were convinced they would win because they had... God on their side. And therefore, they could wait us out. It might make good tactical approach to suggest a break with al-Qaeda, as they sometimes say that they would, or no wider ambitions if what you want to get now is the international community to walk away from the region, and more specifically now, if you, what you want to do is to undermine the military surge which is, been, which is currently underway. But how would you hold them to a promise if made? Would it be even able, be even able, would they even be able to deliver on the promise if they really thought it was, uh, it was something in their interest? I say this because a Taliban-led regime in Afghanistan without international support would be highly dependent upon international Islamic groups uh, as well as Pakistan's economic assistance. How would they be able to resist al-Qaeda if, in that context, they were faced as they would be in a civil war and they would have the need for political and military assistance? Above all, any success by the Taliban against the U.S. and coalition partners is bound to have an energizing effect on the Pakistani insurgency as well as on those in Central Asia, which were previously supported by the Afghan Taliban. And I say this because the Pakistan, in victory, the Pakistan, the, Af the Afghan Taliban would have every reason to say, look, if we're bringing Sharia governance to Afghanistan, we really don't care about we really don't care about Pakistan, even though the Pakistani Taliban have been assisting us in our insurgency. I think even the Pakistan government has come around to the realization that uh, it may be very dangerous for the, Pakistan, for the Afghan Taliban to monopolize power in Afghanistan and that they are better off with a, with a coalition government as long as it's not a coalition government friendly to the Indians. Uh, and this is why uh, I believe the, the Pakistan security forces and the government together are working as hard as they are for a compromise solution, one which naturally is intended to protect Pakistan's interests. Let me try to conclude here quickly. Um, 
Knowing what we do about the extent of Islamic dimension in the insurgencies, how does the U.S. deal strategically with these insurgencies? Much can be done, I think, in enlisting religious authority to question the justification for violence by the Taliban, especially indiscriminate killings that, are, that have affected uh, civilians, innocent civilians. And I'm not just talking here about beheadings and, and so on, but the fact that most of the collateral damage is caused by the Taliban and not by the uh, U.S. and its coalition partners. More attention be given to empowering traditional leaders and traditional norms, including those that stress the more spiritualistic and pacific schools of Islam that have, as I suggested before, so long dominated the practices historically in Afghanistan and Pakistan. All of this entails a counter-narrative to compete with the idea that the Americans and their coalition friends are enemies of Islam, and as it applies to Afghanistan, that they'll be there as occupiers intent upon imposing an alien culture. None of this, though, is going to be easy. We're left with trying to capitalize on the fact that, as I've already mentioned, the Taliban as such, particularly in Afghanistan, is a conglomerate of, of groups with different motives. They're joining and sympathizing with the Taliban uh, is not in many cases primarily by any means uh, motivated by ideological considerations. It certainly is for the leadership. The approach in the current counterinsurgency operations focuses not on reconciliation with these leaders, not on a grand bargain, but on reintegration, on the gradual process of peeling off the various components of the Taliban. It's aimed at the lower and middle levels, the individuals and groups that have taken up arms because it's a livelihood or because they have group or personal grievances against the government and resentment, yes, against the behavior of international forces. These are the kinds of motivations that can presumably be addressed with, try, with bringing basic security development and justice, and importantly, convincing those whose loyalties can be won back or won over that yours is the winning side. That's going to be critical. Understandably, the skepticism about the Pakistan, the Afghanistan government's ability to deliver and the reliability of its international partners. There are no guarantees that it will work, especially in Afghanistan. It may actually be too late to turn things around, and that many of these strategies, had they been tried in the first five years in our involvement in Afghanistan, would have been, I think, uh, rather fruitful. But it may be too late. I do think, though, we'll know by the end of this year. Thank you. You know, I did that without the mic. Uh, I know when the mic voice seems like it's going. <laughs> I'll continue that way. Please. I, I think the other mic is working. People are probably hearing through that. No, maybe, yes, yes. Thank you.
very interesting position. The Iranians do not want to see the Taliban return. After all, this is a this is a uh, <coughs> Sunni group who they consider to be fanatics. In fact, at one point in the 1990s, they described the the Afghan Taliban as people who give Islam a bad name. <laughs> So they're, they've got very mixed feelings here. They don't, they actually do want to see the United States involved in Afghanistan because as in Iraq, it has solved a problem for them. Uh, they, uh, they, as I say, it's not in their interest. And what I've said also about the, uh, the, the Taliban and their anti-Shia reputation, uh, including the Shia inside Afghanistan who've got a great deal of fear in the Taliban return. They call the Hazaras. That's the major group of the Shia group. Uh, so they're, they're ambivalent on that, but they don't want the U.S. to become too comfortable. And so, uh, to some extent, they even, some elements in Iran, it may even be aiding the Taliban so that uh, but not enough that the Taliban will succeed in returning. And if there is a civil war, Iran will occupy very quickly through its through its clients the entire western part of the country. It will it already had very strong influence there. Iran also has a strong commercial interest in Afghanistan. Uh, there are hundreds of trucks across the border from Iran bringing consumer goods into Afghanistan. Uh, now your, your second question involved democracy. That's an enormous subject. Actually, the stress on democracy has has become far less in recent uh, in the recent period. Uh, it's not that uh, we have disowned democracy as a goal, but some of the institutional aspects of it, obviously, uh, people have had, had to take a second look at. Uh, we probably made a mistake in in forcing so many elections, which they can't afford to hold and we have to pay for. They can't afford the elections. So we also probably have some second second thoughts about having created as early as we did a parliament uh, where um, it's uh, where none of the members of the parliament have ever served in a legislative body before. And I know I sat uh, in, in, in Kabul in, in the lead up to the inauguration of the parliament and was just uh, uh, taken aback by the fact that no one knew really what this body was going to be doing. And to prove it, they've done very little in, in, in the five years that they've been there, uh, partly because an important element of democracy was never put in there, and you can't have one without the other. You can't have a parliamentary system and expect it to be effective or functioning without political parties or some surrogate for a political party. No. So what you have is that every member is a party into him and herself. But I don't think that we should say then now that we have to give up on democracy. Because if what we mean by that is that people 
want to be able to express their own interests, to make demands on those who are governing them, and their expectations have risen. Traditionally, Afghan expectations were very low about what they expected from, from government. But they have risen. Still, in the, in the future, if there is a success here, it's going to be essentially a decentralized system. But there are expectations of the center. People want to be able to influence theirs. And that's why there's such a great deal of concern here about, about corruption. So that aspect of democracy, I think, is, is, is rather universal. So, too, that those who you do put in power, that they feel accountable to you. So if we just limit democracy to those notions about being able to express your interests and holding your leaders accountable, uh, we don't have to argue about whether the Afghans are ready for democracy. I don't know if that satisfies Yes. Would you expand on your differential differentiation between the Taliban and the Sharia group? I, I, in my own mind, I've always kind of put those together, and you've separated them for some reason, I think. Uh, no, uh, Salafi, I think. Uh, Salafi is probably what it means rather than Sharia. Uh, no, no, they, they're, Sharia is, is the Islamic, yes, is Islamic law. Right, I understand. Uh, drawn from, from Quran, from other sources. That is the mainstay of the uh, of their of their uh, theological uh, uh, sense of themselves that that it is enforcing this kind of law which is more than just more than just uh, le- a, le- a, a set of legal principles in a in some degree to the extent that we have but one that covers one's whole lifestyle. Uh, no, there is no separation so, there. So but what I, was, what I was suggesting was that it wasn't exclusive. That it was, it was important, particularly for the leadership, and that that's important as we look to how we can deal with the leadership. But uh, in general, the the uh, the Afghans are consumed by their religion. But as I suggested, it's a kind of relaxed approach. Uh, it's the idea that you would have there, for example, that you couldn't fly kites, or there'd be no dancing, or no music, no television. Um, I spent several days in Kabul while the Taliban were in control there. And it was a ghost town. Uh, I mean, uh, there was hardly anyone on the streets. Now, it's true, a lot of people had had fled from Pakistan and, uh, and Iran. But uh, that was, especially as their rule went on, uh, they felt that that kind of heavy-handed uh, approach uh, very difficult to take, especially in a place like Kabul, which had always been far more uh, urbanized and, uh, and cosmopolitan than, than the rest of the country. But the country is socially conservative. In a way, what the Taliban did was to bring some of the most rural values and impose them on the cities. And that was where most of the resistance... But there was resistance in the countryside after a while, too. During the time I was reading intelligence, we used to get information that various commanders would join with them 
were ready to, to jump ship. They had had enough. The trouble was they didn't see an alternative. Because the alternative at that point was to join the so-called Northern Alliance, which was made up of the ethnic minorities. And that was a step too far. What happened when we came in was we gave them the alternative. And we had several years in which the international community was welcomed with open arms. They, they really sought to have us deployed throughout the entire country. So the idea that the Afghans are xenophobic uh, is nonsense. They can, they can tell the difference between those who are there to help them and those who are there to dominate them, to rule them, to exploit them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, would you talk a little bit about what you said at the very end about the something has to be solved by the end of the year? Oh, yeah. Corruption. I guess that was the code. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, was, I should have. Um, and also, if that doesn't happen, what would you read for doses for, for yeah. the next year? No, I, I say that only because the Kandahar campaign, in fact, there's, there's a piece on, on this today in the New York Times, um, which I think emphasizes this as well. Um, the, right now, what we're seeing is the so-called Kandahar campaign. And Kandahar is the heart of the Taliban movement. Omar is from very close by. Uh, and this is where they have their, their command. And it is a very conservative city. Uh, this, is the, this is the hard case. Uh, if they can succeed, and what this means is if they can bring under control city of Kandahar and three districts adjoining That's 80% of the population of the entire province. If they can exercise a reasonable degree of success or have a reasonable degree of success there, what will happen is not that there will be great military victories to celebrate, but a change in perception about who is going to prevail? Who has the initiative? Right now, the greatest problem that, that we face is that the perception is that the international forces are losing, that they're falling back, that time is on the Taliban side, confirming their belief in, in, in their own destiny. We have to reverse that perception. I think what we have done in the last few months is at least put a decision on that in abeyance for a lot of people. But unless we reverse it and don't win the war of perception, I don't think that we can imagine a favorable outcome. We can talk about what a favorable outcome is as well. But by the end of the year, we'll have a good sense about whether the Kandahar operations part of this counterinsurgency strategy which focuses not on killing the enemy but on protecting the population in order to be able to then gain that confidence which you're going to have to sustain your presence or, or some authority will whether it's the Afghans or, or international forces and then to be able to deliver the kinds of services particularly the kinds of a governance and system of justice that would 
that would deter them from the kind of being attracted by the same kind of appeals that the Taliban now make. What the Taliban say is, we can bring security, and they can, and we can bring justice, we would say a crude kind of justice perhaps, but it's a sure justice, it's a quick justice, and given the the state of of the judicial system in the country today, and this is including the police and, and the prosecutors and the judges, it is probably one of the strongest things that works against our getting a restoration of the faith and confidence of the Afghan people. And so much a part of that is corruption and drugs. Well, if that fails, what would be your policy okay. education for the United States? And that brings up, you know, we've set a deadline in July of next year. Uh, and at first I thought, and I still think it was a mistake to set a date, most people uh, Not because I thought that it meant that we're really going to leave July. Now that, that could happen, but not because of that. The, all it said was that we were going to begin to withdraw first. But that played very badly in the region. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, that played. Uh, very bad. And they had warning. Well, what do you say? I was in the White House the day of the, the talk, before the talk. And I made a strong point of the fact that please don't underestimate the negative effect that this is going to have on the way people perceive our staying power in those two countries. But they felt for political reasons, domestically, they could not portray this as an indefinite operation. Okay? Uh, to pay this actually didn't have the political balance that it was supposed to have. Uh, it didn't help that much uh, political. Uh, because people rightly pointed out that uh, you're, you're going to, you don't advertise this and, and the message is going to have out there. But I now view it a little differently because in connection with just what you're asking. <coughs> certainly by July of next year, if we don't know at the end of this year, we certainly will by July of next year. I think we'll know sooner than that. Whether this approach is the right approach or whether it's the right approach <laughs> and it's just impossible to realize uh, its success because of the the lateness of it. Uh, if it is the right approach, if we do see that we are beginning to, uh, we have we have begun to want, win this war of perceptions, and that you are getting the kind of delivery here that is necessary to sustain military victories, we can have military victories. That's 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 the easy part. Uh, even if they're not always clean, we can have those. We've got enough force on the ground. And, uh, and they will back off if things get really rough. By then, we'll know. And if we do, and we are succeeding, we can afford to take out 10% of our forces, 15 20% of our forces, and still not, I think, uh, put in jeopardy those gains. If, if it's not gone well, it hasn't gone well, then we have to have a plan B. And then some of what we went into the debate 
last fall about whether by doing less we would accomplish more. I think we'll come back on the table. We'll be asking what kind of containment policy can we adopt? And for that we won't need that number of forces. For a very practical reason why there had to be a deadline as it turns out. We can't sustain this rotation, military rotation. Some people are already there for the third time. We cannot the military tells them to stand that. Uh, and the public may not stand for it. Unless I think the public will be very tolerant if it looks like we're succeeding. Um, that tolerance will naturally decline very quickly if it looks like we're failing. Yes. Uh, excuse me. Two questions. Could you please talk a little bit more about the relationships between Al Qaeda and the Taliban? And the other question uh, would deal with Karzai's role. Mm. That's very controversial. There's every reason to believe that there is not an intimate relationship between the Afghan Taliban and Al-Qaeda, but that Al-Qaeda has provided not only to the Afghan Taliban, but to the other insurgent groups, as well as to the Pakistani Taliban, has served as a force multiplier. It, it has helped them raise money. It has helped them with logistics. Uh, it has helped them with uh, uh, providing um, a technical know-how uh, when it comes to making it a more lethal insurgency. Uh, it has provided a certain degree of inspiration, if you will. Uh, it has had that. It depends on the group. For example, the Sokani group, we have every reason to think, has a very close relationship with Al-Qaeda. Probably Al-Qaeda's and when we say Al-Qaeda here, this is not a fighting force. This is perhaps several hundred people. And to portray them as being somehow the, uh, the keystone in all this, I think, is, is indefensible. And unfortunately, I think the president putting it in those terms, uh, uh, even though I don't believe that as anyone who, who looks at this carefully really believes that if the Taliban... If Al-Qaeda disappeared tomorrow, that wouldn't necessarily mean that the insurgencies would disappear. Not at all. Um, but if you put it all on them, the message that you're sending is that if we take care of our interests and we knock off Bin Laden and Ayman Zawari, if we take care of that, that we're gone. Naturally, that reinforces the idea that we're not reliable. Our interests there are, are, are really regional. They involve Pakistan. They involve our relationship with India and the countries in the Gulf, certainly. Iran. Uh, somehow we've got to redefine that as saying that the Taliban is important. Uh, but there's another organization out there, and it's called Lashka Taiba. <clears throat> I uh, testified in the Congress three weeks ago on Lashka Taiba. And my, my thesis was the Lashka Taiba is much more dangerous than Al-Qaeda. No, not in terms of perhaps plotting uh, an incident in, in 
Europe than the United States. I'm sure that Al-Qaeda is, is good at that. But because they can recruit openly, like Al-Qaeda, they can raise funds openly, they have the support of the Pakistan state because they go under the cover of a charity called Jamaat al-Dawah. Uh, and they have the reach increasingly of Al-Qaeda where they can have, they have chapters which are more or less open chapters in 17 different countries. Whereas most of the people we think in Al-Qaeda are in caves somewhere. These people are on the streets in relief work and winning converts. Uh, as far as Karzai uh, is concerned, that's a very big topic. Well, let's put it this way. He's going to be there apparently for a while. Uh, he was, it would have been far better had he not, had he not uh, stayed on ran as president. Um, his election was not legitimate. Again, personal. I was there as an observer for the election. And uh, uh, it was everything they said it was. Uh, although I didn't see it personally. Actually, I wouldn't do it. <coughs> but uh, we're going to have to live with him. And that means that we... We're going to have to stand some of his antics, but also let him know that there are red lines too. And recently, he crossed those red lines. Uh, he'll be he'll be visiting Washington uh, in a couple of weeks, and there'll be some men in the fences here. But uh, he certainly is not helping uh, with those kinds of remarks. I don't think there's any question. So what I'm saying about him is, at this point, we can't live without him because he is the president of the country, and he can make things much more difficult for us. But we can't live without him, but he's difficult to live with. And what we should not do is, if we have reasons, we have a stake in what happens in this region, we can't let it be held hostage to his maladministration and his personal idiosyncrasies. Uh, I personally think the guy is paranoid. I'm not just surprised. Most people believe that, this, that he does not trust anyone. Right? You said that there's a desperate need or a need for a counter-narrative because that's an attracts uh, Taliban and others. And the Afghans are not xenophobic, but I'm wondering what the bars of that counter-narrative would look like. Yeah. And as I run through my mind what it might look like, it asks Afghans and Pakistanis to believe things that are not true. Okay. You know, that the United States is going to stay for a long time. That we do have high stakes there. That the public will stay behind this. And that in fact, you know, this is vital to us and we're not just there for instrumental purposes. And a lot of those things I think are highly questionable. You know, we can certainly do things that would reinforce those bad energies. I think that's what we can do. Yes. Whether we can reverse those, particularly after we've, you know, we've uh, perhaps shown our colors. Uh, I can think of a number of things, ways in which we can make things worse. For example, 
uh, as we did a couple of years ago, talk about strategic partnership with them, which led many people to think of permanent American bases there. Um, but on the positive side of how do we go about reversing this, uh, obviously, a strong part of this is that the United States is there for the long haul. I think we can change our rhetoric, which indicates in what way we expect to be committed. Uh, there's no question that even if things go very well, uh, we and the international community uh, are looking at a decade, a decade and a half of involvement. Uh, there are ways, and I think we have, look, I think we have moved in that direction. Uh, General McChrystal is very good at communicating. Uh, the willingness now, not as we did before, to take every incident where there was uh, collateral damage and denying that it occurred, certainly worked very strongly against us. Uh, there are now several instances where uh, this happened and will continue to happen, where we uh, where we showed not just apology, but we then followed the local tradition of compensating people for their losses. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it's in rather small ways. Uh, President Obama is still highly regarded in Afghanistan. I just think that more direct communication with the people, uh, if you will, someone on, and I think for the region, you need a Cairo speech for that region. I think that would help enormously. And, and uh, the, whatever bad feelings there are in Pakistan toward the United States, and they, and they are, and, and we want to see you and over there. They, they don't carry over entirely to the president. He still has a great deal. Uh, uh, support uh, even in Pakistan. Uh, but then it's a very important topic. I just don't think people are paying enough attention to it. We, we on the other hand, uh, are devoting more of our resources to what we call strategic communications. Uh, and uh, yeah. how would you address the Pakistani complaint about our support for Musharraf for so long? How can we? We can't. We can't change that. We can't change the fact that the administration decided that Musharraf was the key to our success in Afghanistan, that he would deliver the army, and that the army could could uh, or it was critical to our being able to uh, control infiltration into the country. Uh, we're living with that. We look. Just as with Iran, we live with the fact that we ousted most of them. We, they never forgot that. Uh, we are living with that. But what we can do is to show sincerely that we do support elected democratic government now. It's hard because this government is weak in Pakistan, and um, the president, who should represent the best of the democratic system there, is... Uh, deeply disliked in the country. But we can, and it's very easy now to turn to someone like the general, General Kiyadi, who's the head of the army, and talk to him exclusively 
But I believe we are trying to be careful not to do that. We have to talk to him. And he has, to some extent, been doing things that we consider to be positive from our standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, we've no doubt that we could not tolerate a military takeover of the country again. That's absolutely critical. So I think there are ways in which we can ameliorate some of the negatives that were there uh, because we stayed with Mashar despite everything through, uh, and made excuses for him when, uh, when we could really have played a much larger role there. But we seemed at that point uh, to uh, be willing to jettison uh, any kind of democratic movements there at a time when they were emerging, when it was very clear that they were emerging were very strong. Uh, I could go into uh, you know, our dealings with Benazir Bhutto and, and what we tried to accomplish after the fact to bring in Benazir Bhutto in order to save him uh, in the coalition government. And of course, she's assassinated. Uh, but that paved the way then for, uh, for uh, By the way, it seems like President Michel General Mushaf is trying to get back into Pakistan politics. Uh, he's just formed a political party. Government help us. One last question. Yeah, I think this is one last question. Okay. Very difficult <clears throat> to eliminate an insurgency when it enjoys sanctuary across an international border. What sort of levers uh, do we have in Pakistan to get them to become a more full partner in uh, ejecting the Afghan Taliban from their territory? The Afghan Well, they finally did come around to the conclusion that the Pakistani Taliban were an existential threat. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily think that the Pakistan Taliban aren't creatures of our policy. That is, their problem, or we created that problem. So it's not that, that, that they, they share with us the sense of a common enemy. Uh, they believe they wouldn't have had the radicalization overlooking the fact that there's been this process of radicalization going on for as long as it did. Uh, I think the answer is they have to be convinced that we are going to be around and that they're having a Pashtun card to play in the, in the person of the Taliban and the other Afghan groups. Uh, they're never going to get to play that card. They have begun to have second thoughts about the Taliban only because they come to the, I think, politically to the conclusion that, as I suggested before, the Taliban don't take orders for it. In fact, you know, at one time there were these Mujahideen parties in the 1980s who fought the jihad uh, and couldn't have done so without Pakistan's support. As soon as they got to Kabul, they turned on Islamabad. Uh, they are concerned about the control of these groups. And it may very well be that if they think that there can be an outcome in Afghanistan, and that's why I think that it's in Pakistan's interest to see us succeed in Afghanistan. If they can be sure that there's going to be a stable government, there's no good reason why they want instability in Afghanistan. I know there are many who believe how they want to run Afghanistan, instability is not in their interest. Civil war is not in their interest. As long as they are in their own mind convinced that 
they don't need the outcome of one, and that whatever government emerges there is going to be one which, as I've suggested, is not going to be aligned and allow the Indians to use Afghanistan as a beachhead or to create problems inside Pakistan. Some of this is exaggerated, but they believe it. They believe it. Uh, it may very well be that what is very important here is general Pakistan, uh, general Pakistan-Indian relations, and is if and when they become more comfortable with one another and reach uh, uh, not a reconciliation, at least a better understanding of where they are, which you think might have been the case once they both have mutual deterrence. But, uh, but it's not happening. So I, uh, uh, I think that they, they, it is India that they see everything through the prism of India. And as long as they do, uh, it's not going to be possible. So let me just conclude then with saying that what I'm trying to say, having difficulty, is that our badgering Pakistan has not paid off. We have some levers, but and the drones are already one of these levers. We have some levers. We we do control now uh, uh, their. We have a very important influence on their economy. We can ill afford to have Pakistan. And in fact, that's our nightmare, a destabilized Pakistan with 100 nuclear weapons. So Pakistan is absolutely critical. It doesn't serve our interest to, to weaken this government. Uh, we ultimately will be able to get more from them when they are convinced that their interests and our interests coincide. They won't always coincide. But we've moved somewhat in that direction over the last year. Uh, whether just how far we'll go, I don't know. But that's the direction we have to go. Marvin, thank you very much. Uh, really wonderful question and answer session. And I think, I think everybody learned quite a lot. Thank you.